Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Great to be with you on a Saturday evening, 78 degrees. Uh, Joining me now... One of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota Law School. How are you? I am doing very well. How are you tonight? I am doing fine. As I've been saying, uh, it's so great to have you on. You are just back from a trip to Israel, and I wasn't sure if – I know you do a lot of trips uh, at, where you teach on behalf of the State Department. This was not one of those trips. You were actually at Hebrew University. So why don't you tell us what you were doing there? Okay, so I, this is my second trip there at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which is a very fine school. And what I was there for was a conference at the Truman Institute named – Institute for Peace, named after President Harry Truman. And the conference last year and the one this time was convening several elected officials from from about a dozen countries across Africa, including many countries that have a large immigrant population in Minnesota, for example, such as Somalia, um, um, Nigeria, Liberia. And the conference was all about democracy and economic development um, in Africa. And what I was doing was giving a couple of talks and leading some discussions about what we know about the relationships between how countries economically grow and what that means in terms of the prospects for democracy. So, so that was the official part. The other unofficial part was on Tuesday afternoon, I had an opportunity to do a tour of the old city. And oh, wow. If, if anybody wants I, I've, to- I've always wanted to go... Oh my gosh! To, to to Jerusalem and yeah. to Israel and see yeah. that because I mean it's amazing. If anybody wants to go to my Facebook page, I posted um, four pictures there, and the four pictures that I posted, um, one of them was the Dome of the Rock, which is considered um, uh, a very important place for all three major um, you know faiths: Muslim, Christian, and Jewish. Um, then um, a picture of the um, of the Wailing Wall. I was there, and I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. And then I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is where both the tomb of Jesus's and like 15 feet away is the the spot where Jesus was crucified. So so I got a chance to sort of look at some of the major um, religious spots in Jerusalem, which are really quite sacred to all three major faiths. Absolutely. And, and there, you have a, quote, funny story about the Wailing Wall? The Wailing Wall, which <laughs> one thing I didn't know about when I went over there is that when I was, I was doing the tour and had a chance to go there, and someone said, um, are you going to send a letter to God? And I said, what do you mean by that? And they oh, said, they said, well, they put the letter in the you put the letters wall. in the cracks. Yes, right. And so, of course, I had to use the opportunity to uh, to um, to put a letter in one of the cracks um, and send a letter to God. Okay, we won't ask because we assume it's private. But that that is pretty cool to have been there. Yeah, right. So you were there though when um, some pretty big news broke here in the United States. Although it probably was it broke around four central time, four fifteen, four thirty. Mm-hmm. Firing James Comey, which probably was the middle of the night. Yeah, because, over in Israel, right? Yeah. It's a, 
for, for us, it's an eight-hour time difference. So four o'clock here would have been midnight. Um, but given the fact I'm I'm horrible um, with travel in terms of um, jet lag and time zones, uh, I actually was probably up at midnight and, I, and when that broke um, and, and saw it. And so, but so we had a, we had an interesting discussion of, of, about the implications. Of that. I mean, clearly, just going over there, I think one of the concerns that before the Comey story broke. Was was clearly the the African countries, and there was a couple of people from the Israeli um, government there that I was talking to, sort of trying to discern any rhyme or reason or or pattern to Trump's foreign policy and what it meant to the Middle East and Africa. And uh, and, and to be quite honest, it's kind of hard to figure that out. Um, right. Really is. Well, so, so you're saying like even before this, because and actually, you know, we started this show with Mary Curtin, who's a diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. She's a retired diplomat. Right. She's in the academic realm right now. But she was talking about, you know, the colleagues that she still knows that uncertainty is really – uh, no matter what, what, whether you are a supporter of Mr. Trump's or, or somebody who is a critic, I think that seems to be a reality, that there seems to be a lot of uncertainty out there mm-hmm. uh, amongst our allies and perhaps those who are not our allies about what exactly the president is, um, what his foreign policy is. Right. And I will say that we do have some breaking foreign news policy. Uh, North Korea tests its first missile, uh, apparently, within the past few hours. Uh, since uh, the election in the South, that just happened this evening. Right. So, but, but but you're saying that that what you were hearing was what uncertainty? Uncertainty was the word. And I was going to say is that you know this is something you know so so they're uncertain about it. And you might and just sort of connect something back. You might recall as about. Four weeks ago, I was actually at the State Department in Washington. We talked a little bit about this. And at that point, um, I was there the day when, um, late afternoon in the State Department, when the U.S. launched the, the missile attack against Syria. And I'm in the State Department late afternoon, and somebody kind of runs into one of the meetings I was in and, said, and says, turn on CNN, we're shooting missiles at Syria. And literally nobody at the State Department knew it in advance. And so they were they were finding out, you know, on television, which is not how the State Department should find out about something like that. But but sort of carrying forward, um, Trump hasn't filled um, a lot of major positions in the State Department. So on, on, on the U.S. side, there's a lot of perplexity. And then internationally, there's also an incredible amount of uh, perplexity, on top of which, while we were talking about Trump even before Comey, is that I think it is tomorrow or Monday that Trump is going to be in Jerusalem. Um, and or he's so, going to the Middle East. He's going to the Middle East. He's going to be staying. Uh, I'll tell you another good story in a second. He's going to be staying at the King David Hotel, which is where, where Barack Obama um, um, stayed at also. But, but the, um, so they were, they were sort of talking about and anticipating um, Trump's visit to Jerusalem and Israel and what he might be talking about. And, and so all this was kind of speculation in terms of what it means for Israel, what it means for the Middle East, what it means for Africa. Um, and then the Comey fire happened. Uh, and what did, I mean, was it, was it this sort of inside baseball American politics, not a big deal? Was it a big deal? I mean, oh, yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. It, it is a big deal over there also, because the questions they were asking me, you know, is because is they're already concerned, um, as I think many Americans are, U.S. citizens or U.S. US people in the U.S. about, um, you know, what happened in the elections last year. Um, is, 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 and several people are asking me, well, what is, 
Trump's and his administration's connection with the Russian Federation. Um, and, so, and so they were, even before the Comey firing, they were asking those questions. And then the Comey firing, it started, they started saying, asking me questions like, well, what does this mean in terms of, of the investigation? What does it mean for the Trump presidency? And so in many ways, they were asking very, very similar questions to, uh, to what we're seeing in the United States, and which we'll probably talk a little bit about tonight also. So, so they... They are very intensely following the United States, especially in Israel, because, of course, the United States is Israel's biggest ally. We are um, one of their staunchest defenders. I think what is it? we give more foreign aid, I think, to Israel than any other country in the world. So it's a very tight relationship. And so, so they're kind of trying to discern, um, you know, I don't want to quite say reading tea leaves, but I'll use that as an expression. They're trying to read tea leaves and figure out what's going on in the United States. Um, because that might help them have a better understanding of what it means to them, and so and so we spent a good chunk of the of the last day, um, in, you know, in between sort of our other work, just sort of talking about about Donald Trump and um, Comey. Right, well, let me ask you this and refresh me: where, where where is Israel in in terms of the relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin? Obviously, uh, Mr. Putin has completely aligned himself with Bashir al-Assad, who is sort of a almost a neighbor, basically, of, of Israel. I, I'm sure they can't be happy about that. But wh- where, do, where do most, in terms of the Israeli government and, and the Israeli population, are, are they concerned about uh, Vladimir Putin and, and his policies in terms of Crimea and, and some of the actions that he's taken in the past few years? Yeah, there's no question they're very worried about it. I mean, they're, they're, they're concerned in terms of the fact that they see um, Russia's more expansive role in the world um, as playing out in Syria in terms of, again, propping up um, the, 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 the Assad regime there. Um, they also speculate, and there may be truth to this, um, that they're propping up and helping Iran. And so they're supporting at least two, two of Israel's enemies. And, and, and therefore, of course, they're, they're worried about you know, what this might mean if, in fact, Trump and Putin are working very closely together uh, or, or they're somehow you know, there's some kind of reproachment there, you know, what does that mean for Israeli politics? And so, and so that's why they're also anticipating um, and, and wondering what the, what the meeting's going to be like with, with the Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and Donald Trump starting, I think it's Monday or Tuesday or something like that this coming week. So, so yes, I, they, are, they are very concerned and view Russia um, as an adversary in, um, of, of Israel. All right. Well, listen, um, let's um, we do have to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd just like to get your take on the Comey firing and and sort of some of the fallout with the discussions about um, are there are there tapes or is there conversations being taped? Um, You know, Comey uh, allegedly, according to the president, saying, don't worry, you're not under investigation, the appropriateness of that. Um, All the questions surrounding this, uh, which and, and just, you know, what what all that means from the legal perspective. So sure. more with David Schultz after this. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 822 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz just back from Israel, uh, getting the reaction from the folks in Israel. Now, let me just get your take on this here. Sure. Um, just this has been obviously a, a pretty big deal. There are critics and a lot of independents who are – expressing grave concerns about this uh, firing. I will say, though, I do think it's important to remember that apparently I saw one poll that says more than 80 percent of Republicans are 
say this is just fine what the president has done. What What is your reading uh, from the legal perspective uh, as well as the political perspective of this firing? Okay, let's start with the legal perspective first. And it does appear that Comey and the FBI were engaged in su- some type of investigation, and we know this, regarding the, the Russian involvement in the U.S. elections, as well as it appears they were at least investigating Flynn, you know, in terms of some of his connections. And, and that's the former so that, national security advisor exactly. who had to resign and who just even the day before the firing, Sally Yates, the former acting attorney general, uh, said that the Obama administration had actually warned Trump, and actually President Obama apparently personally warned Trump about him, saying we have intelligence that suggests he's had dealings with the Russians that are not appropriate. Right, right. And so I mention that because that does seem to be the case, that there was an FBI investigation um, ongoing at this point. Now, legally, where I want to start is that if, in fact, um, Trump um, dismissed Comey for reasons to try to short-circuit or to prevent that investigation from going forward. From a legal perspective, what this amounts to potentially is obstruction of justice. You know, it is impeding a potential criminal investigation by the FBI. Um, And and that becomes pretty serious because, you know, not to overwork the parallels back to Watergate nearly 40 years ago, um, but on one level, um, a lot of what Watergate was about uh, were charges of obstruction of justice, co- you know, cover-ups um, of the Watergate, Watergate break-in. And so that's the one level where I start with here, is that, is that understanding the motives and reasons. And this is partly where politically now Trump, his White House staff and communications department, has tripped over a variety of things. Because we've noticed in the, what, the last 42 to, what, you know, you know, not, you know, 42 to 72 hours, 48 to 72 hours in that area, um, is that we've seen conflicting reasons being offered for for why Comey was dismissed. And that's actually critical for a, from a legal perspective, because if, in fact, it was because of, of reasons, as I mentioned here, to impede an ongoing criminal investigation, then that does rise to a violation of federal law in terms of obstruction of justice. And that becomes serious, not just in terms of potential you know, criminal issues, but also in terms of the fact that this now becomes perhaps more fodder for, for congressional investigation and um, obstruction of justice um, on a completely different plane becomes a possible factor that could be considered if Congress at some point wanted to move towards considerations of impeachment. So, so this is potentially, from a legal perspective, very, very serious. And again, that's why I mentioned why I think the Trump administration's conflicting reasons in terms of, 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 of surrounding Comey's dismissal um, is, is so critical um, in, um, it, from, from just that legal perspective. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that you know, the um, memo from the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein talks all about the uh, Comey handling of the Clinton email situation and the press conference and all of that. I guess what, what so, and even there are a few Republicans, even though most Republicans are, are clearly supporting the president on this, there are a number of Republicans, including I think Senator Burr, who's the, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who are saying, I can't understand the timing. Mm-hmm. Um, even uh, Senator Ted Cruz mm-hmm. of Texas said it would have been a lot cleaner mm-hmm. to do this in January exactly. when, when you just came in. 
I, I guess that's the problem here right. is if this is all about Hillary Clinton and the handling of her emails, which certainly a lot of Democrats feel handed the election to Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's a gross overstatement myself. I but do. but it's the timing that that's that's doesn't add up. Right. And, and, and again, rarely do we get circumstances in, in criminal situations where somebody um, um, explains to you very clearly what their intention is. Um, most of the time, you know, we hear like really bad movies that talk about circumstantial evidence. In many situations, evidence is circumstantial and contextual, and we oftentimes ascertain intent by timing. And the reason why I mentioned that, you're right, had on January 20th or 21st, he had asked for for Comey's resignation, many people would have said, okay, that's his prerogative as president, um, whether it's because he wants his own person, he doesn't like what he did with with Hillary Clinton's investigation, et cetera, et cetera. But for now it to be in this situation to where we are relatively deep into a, an investigation. Again, the timing, especially you know, after acting Attorney um, General Yates had testified earlier in the week, raise, raises, again, questions about intentionality. And then, again, now the disarray in the White House, White House Staff and Communications Department, um, all about, about, again, the reasoning, um, again, sort of, you know, lead us towards thinking that it has something to do with the Russian investigation, um, and now there is an effort to try to cover up the the real reasons for what they were doing. And, and, and I, mean, I, I think that, yeah, that's what people are trying to figure out. And, yeah. and then the Rosenstein memo, he's, he, the gist of that, the thrust of it is not Rosenstein saying he should have. You know, first of all, Comey can't indict anybody; he's right. just a, you know the FBI. But right. it, it's it's they're criticizing him. For having the news conference in July mm-hmm. and, and then going public in, in October. Right. I yeah. mean, it, it's all the things that the Democrats were upset about. And then, of course, you know, Trump is saying, hey, listen, all these Democrats wanted him fired, too, which right. is true. Right. Um, but it, it's the waiting mm-hmm. that, that is is difficult to understand. And, and there are also indications that, that Comey went to uh, – the attorney general's office asking for more resources for this investigation. Right, right, and that's and which which again suggests that the investigation was moving into higher gear at this point in terms of um, going further. And again, leading some people to speculate that in fact um, they were they were starting to uncover some stuff. And again. Again, not to overwork the analogy, but it puts us back to the situation of 1973 when Nixon fires Archibald Cox, when it be clear that Cox is now starting to request additional materials and, and getting what we eventually know was getting pretty close to the President of the United States in terms of investigation. Um, and, and Nixon wanted to basically cut off that investigation. So, so again, not wanting to over over um, you know rot those parallels, but there are some parallels there. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I guess there are some people who say, "Well, no, that that's not completely analogous because th- that investigation was much further on." And I think that was at the point where Cox was trying to get his hands on the tapes. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the tapes that that it was revealed that there were these tapes of all these conversations in the Oval Office, and Cox, the special prosecutor, tried to subpoena them, and that's when um, I, I didn't it didn't um, the president President Nixon want. Um, the Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Cox, and and Richardson wouldn't do it and resign, and his deputy wouldn't do it, William right. Ruckelhaus. That's right. And so then, yeah, it's Pork. called the Saturday Night Massacre. But it's just, 
Um, and, and then what I don't understand, too, is, you know, the supporters of the president are, are dismissing, of course, any connection with Watergate. And, and it's a stretch still at this point. But then why bring up this allude to these tapes in the Oval Office oh, I know, I know. or the possibility of the tapes right. in this tweet uh, right. saying, you know, Jim Comey better – you know, better hope there aren't any tapes there. And then Sean Spicer yesterday at the briefing refusing to either say yes or no There are whether there are tapes in the Oval Office. Right. This is all confusing, but not a surprise. Many presidents tape record for all kinds of reasons. And what this sets up now is another scenario, which is if, in fact, either Congress now requests as part of its investigation those White House tapes or if there's a um, continued FBI investigation requests them, um, he will lose because U.S. versus Nixon, which is the major court case here, um, basically resolves the issue that says that presidents cannot claim executive privilege um, and refuse to comply with a subpoena in the face of a pending criminal investigation. You know, I'm a law professor, and so this would be one of those cases where I would say that if, if it's not four square, it's like three three squares. 99 out of 100's perfect precedent, um, if, um, U.S. versus Nixon, for what could very well happen in this case. If, if Trump, if tapes exist and Trump refuses them, he's going to lose. All right. And, and how about this issue? And we do have to take a break, but uh, we've got so much to talk about. But, but how about this issue of Trump asking Comey, am I under investigation? And Comey saying, no, no, you're not. Two, two quick things here. First, I, it's, timing is an issue. And second, um, I can tell you from having been on the end, you know, working in government, involved in some kind of investigations, you almost never tell people um, that they're under investigation. Um, and you, um, or in this case here, you build firewalls up. Again, we don't exactly know what those conversations were and when they actually took place. But I would have been surprised if Comey would have been so candid to tell the president and say, you're not being investigated. Um, that, that does not make sense in terms of what somebody like him would have done. All right, because um, there are all sort of ethical and, and, and legal rules here. Exactly. We, we do have to take a, a quick break. Um, we've got some weather, then we get, get a little break on the backside of that. Uh, more with David Schultz, and we also need to talk about the legislature as well. So um, much more ahead. Keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 8. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 8.37, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz on News Radio 830 WCCO. Um, we were chatting in the break. Um, you wanted to go into more sort of, of the potential legal fallout here. Uh, I mean, there are so many angles to this. Um, more the political political fallout. Or right. political fallout. Um, right. And in the midst of this, you know, I think, I think even the president's supporters are trying to get him to ease off the Twitter Right. But um, to, to renew his battle with Rosie O'Donnell almost let a surreal aspect to this, you know, right. in the middle of this on Twitter. But um, what, what, what in terms of the political fallout? Because I do think it is important to remember and, and to look at some of these polls that show, you know, something. The Republican mainstream appears to be with him. There are a few Republican leaders who are raising some concerns, including John McCain, um, Lindsey Graham. Senator Byrd, the chair of the Intelligence Committee, uh, Eric Paulson, Congressman Eric Paulson from uh, Minnesota, calling for an independent investigation. But overall, it looks like he has the Republicans. Right. He's solidly with Republicans. We know he doesn't have the, the Democrats who are solidly against him. The real battleground, of course, is what? It's with the swing voters. And the swing voters... It doesn't the swing look like he has them. 
Pardon me? It does not look like he's got them. He does not have them either. And this becomes critical because I think the real issue in terms of fallout now is what this means in terms of already now the 2018 congressional elections. And we know that the Republicans hold a 52-48 essentially balance in the Senate. There'll be roughly, what, 33 or 34 um, Senate seats up. Um, The Democrats are looking at this as a possibility of of Trump weighing down the Republicans in terms of the Senate elections and also hoping that they'll be able to make significant gains um, in the House of Representatives. And typically, midterm elections of a president's first term, the incumbent party um, doesn't do very well. And so I think the fallout now is, is to what extent does this does what's happening with Trump affect those critical, let's say, roughly 20 to 25 swing swing districts in the House of Representatives, those close Senate races, and does it have broader political carnage there? So, so I think that's one issue. I, I mean, I, what did you think of, of Paulson being Congressman Eric Paulson from the western Twin Cities suburbs, the Minnetonka area, uh, coming out as one of the very few Republicans calling for a special investigator? Yes. I think it's a fact that first off, he voted. He voted in terms of the American Health Care Act, you know, which is basically the, you know, the, you know, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, and he's in a district that potentially could be swing, although he's been holding it, and the Republicans have held it for a while. But, but I think Hillary Clinton won that district, I think, by more than nine percentage points. She did, and many of the seats in that district at the legislative level are held by Democrats. And so, and so I think he has to, he's starting to look at this point in terms of the fact that this is Trump, and this is the kind of issue um, that could impact him in terms of the 2018 elections. And so, 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 I think, so I think he's responding as many other Republicans are in swing districts in terms of saying that that maybe um, we have to worry about this. But I think the second political fallout at this point um, is the fact that you know e- even though Trump sort of did the high five a couple of weeks ago when the House voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, it hasn't cleared the Senate and the prospects seem slim at this point. Trump still does not have um, a single major um, legislative victory now going to what about the or after four months, almost four months in office, which is just about unheard of. Almost every president has has some legislative victories. And to what extent does this cre- does does the problems in the White House and with Trump create continuing turmoil that undermines both Trump's political agenda right. and this opportunity that Republicans have? Because for many, they, Repo- they've got they've got. They can, House, they got the Senate, and they got the presidency. They can do whatever they want at this point. Um, they could even get rid of the filibuster rule in the Senate and just clear the deck and pass any legislation they wanted. But they seem at this point so um, engulfed in all the controversies with Trump and his lack of leadership that it very well could be what? They accomplished almost nothing that the stalemate that we saw under Obama, um, which was caused by split control between a Democratic president, Republican House, and Senate, we could now have, what, polarization or stalemate um, intra-party, which is very unusual, almost unheard of. And so the Republicans are on the verge of, of not being able to move any of their legislative agenda when they have an incredibly golden opportunity to do so. And I don't see in the immediate prospects down the line 
um, that, that anything's going to change to where the Republicans are going to be able to actually do anything because Trump's not putting forward anything um, and doesn't seem to be putting his efforts in terms of legislative initiatives and to, a, there's an ex, to the extent that he's using executive orders. Executive orders are actually quite limited to what they can accomplish. Go ask Barack Obama, um, <laughs> who couldn't get a lot done with executive orders. Yeah. Interesting points, all of them. I do want to go back very quickly to Congressman Eric Paulson. I think within the week we will see an announcement of a pretty significant candidate uh, announcing that he's going to run against Mm -hmm. Congressman Paulson, and that candidate is Dean Phillips. Uh, He is probably best known as a businessman and a philanthropist. He is an heir to the Phillips liquor fortune. Mm -hmm. He's in his – Probably late 40s. Anyway, I think he is all in. And I think he is going to be uh, I I think there he has tremendous backing in in Washington as well as I think here. And I think he's going to be a formidable candidate. Now, that being said, Terry Bonoff, very popular senator, state senator, ran against uh, Congressman Paulson and did not do well at all. Uh, she was handily beaten, uh, even though Hillary Clinton right. won that district easily. So obviously, Congressman Paulson is uh, still very popular in his district. But let's take a quick break. I was going to say, quickly before you take the break, one of the differences was also that Paulson had way more money than her. He's not going to have that money advantage against Phillips. He will not have. I mean, I, and I think that there's going to be a major, not only does um, uh, Dean Phillips have the potential to self-fund, but obviously I think that the uh, Democrats are already getting behind him in terms of that. There will not be, you're absolutely yeah. right, Uh, a money advantage for Congressman Paulson in that race. Uh, Let's take a quick break, and then let's look at – well, they all got in a boat together and fished. (laughs) We're talking about the leaders of the Minnesota legislature and Governor Mark Dayton, an impasse at hand uh, with just a little over a week to go. Keep it here, News Radio 830. It is 847. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, uh, you know, we've been talking about uh, the situation with President Trump and fascinating to see what, what's going to happen on this overseas trip. The first overseas trip uh, heading to where you just left. <laughs> you crossed paths. <laughs> we sort of did. Okay, my Almost. Quick, my, my quick story I was going to say is that he's going to be staying at the King David Hotel, um, which is where Obama stayed at before. And so one of the persons who actually gave me a tour used to work at the King David Hotel. So I, I got to sneak in and look at it. All right, so just to let folks know um, um, what the taxpayer cost is going to be, there's two hundred, roughly 200 um, um, rooms in the King David Hotel. The starting price for those rooms is about $2,200 a night. Wow. So, and book in the Trump administration um, has that entire hotel booked. As I'm sure that uh, President Obama did as well. Yes. All right. Um, and that's another story, uh, the president's travel expenses. But let's focus now your thoughts about the Minnesota legislature. Uh, the uh, leaders all uh, and Governor Dayton all got into a boat today to go fish. Mm-hmm. And um, th- I think they people caught fish. Right. They did but, very well today, apparently. <laughs> but not – no movement. No um, the governor had a, a bunch of vetoes on uh, yesterday. The deadline is a week from Monday right. to get this budget deal done, and it looks like there's absolutely no movement. Right, because he vetoed, I think, five – well, the, the state budget consists of, a, of, of 10 what's called omnibus funding bills that fund in 10 different areas um, of, of the government. And he was sent five of them, of which he vetoed, um, and there's another five pending out there. So where we really are as of Monday will be that we have 0 for 10 that have been signed by the governor. 
here. Um, with, with essentially at that point one week to go, the governor and the legislature uh, is very far apart um, on those on those omnibus bills under two dimensions. Dimension one, it's in terms of the actual spending, that in terms of how much is being spent and for what. Anywhere from debates by the governor wanting more money spent on, on education, money spent more on mass transportation, a whole bunch of different things like that. And then second is the concern that he has that many of these omnibus bills have weaved within them policy positions, um, which he also doesn't like. And so we will hit Monday with, with nothing having been signed by the governor with seven days to go and no real indication outside of some sort of vague promises that the governor and the legislature will, will start negotiating. Not impossible in a week, but I think highly unlikely. And we might have even talked about how uh, right when the session started back in January, I suspect we talked about how there was a pretty good probability we should be thinking in terms of what? Special session. I think that's the case. And now we should be thinking about whether or not they can get this all done by July 1st before the start of the next budget year to avoid another government shutdown in the way we had several years ago. Well, and, and, and so the – and that's – when you say the next budget year, that's July 1st. Correct. And I, I just – you know, there are all those budget proposals – but also you've got that real ID issue, which I think is going to be a significant one. I think people are right. going to be upset about that. It, it, it looks like you've got um, – you know, in talking to the, the Republican legislative leaders, uh, certainly House Speaker Kurt Dowd, I did ask him, I said, do you feel you have a mandate? And mm-hmm. he said, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about the legislative mm-hmm. victories that obviously, uh, once again, Republicans control the House, but right. also delivered the Senate as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And yet I think that, that Governor Dayton feels very strongly that he, he too has, has a mandate. That he too has a mandate and that he is there and his popularity is incredibly high. I mean, it's well over 60 percent. I think it's the highest it's been since he's taken office. Right. Correctly. And so, so he, he also, feels like he's got a mandate as and well. And a legacy. And a legacy. And a legacy to protect. Right. And I think that that... Um, is something that I think weighs very heavily on him. I mean, just having interviewed the governor, you know, numerous times, right. I just feel that this is somebody who feels very passionately about the causes that he believes in, you know, early childhood education, those kinds of things. Right, because partly he ran for office when he said that he wanted to to get Minnesota, in his opinion, back in the right direction in terms of spending on on mass transportation, infrastructure, education, get the tax system aligned. Um, and I don't think he's interested in walking away from his governorship um, after eight years with those things not done. And so, and since he's not, so he wants to move on this. And since he's not facing re-election, I don't think he has to worry worry in terms of reprisals from the voters, especially with his you know huge approval ratings. And so, so this is going to be interesting to watch this coming week. But you're right, coming back to it, you know that. Things that we should be looking at is that you would have thought at the very, very least um, at the top of the agenda, besides passing the budget, passing real ID uh, would be something they would agree on because this means come January 1st, Minnesotans aren't going to be able to travel internationally, get into many government buildings. Or even even according to the signs I saw at the airport, use your driver's license to get on a plane. Exactly, exactly. Um, many people won't be able to get into military um, installations. Well, and you told me that, that you know, when you go to the State Department, yeah. you make sure you've got your uh, – when you go to the State Department in Washington, D.C., right. not the State Department you know, offices 
around the world. Around yeah. the world. Oh, yeah. But it, when you go, as you were very recently at the State Department Washington, D.C., you made sure you had your passport with you. Would you have not been able to get in with just your Minnesota driver's license? No, I would not have been able to get in. to the. You know, and, and is this like a high-security area of the United States State Department or just into the United States State Department? This – um, I eventually got into a higher security area, but just getting through the initial front door, uh, I still I still could not have gotten in with my Minnesota ID. Um, um, Your driver's license. My, I mean, yeah, my driver's license, of course. And so, and so, um, and, and that would be that would be true with everybody, everybody, and and even in the more secure areas, it would have been possible if you were a U.S. citizen to get in with a driver's license, uh, Minnesota ID, you know, driver's license. That's not going to happen. So. So think about that. That's that's the thing that's going to. And that's 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 already in effect in some areas. Most most right. people don't have to go to the State Department right. for, for for work the way you do occasionally. But right. um, I mean that's a pretty big deal. That's a very big deal. Not being able to fly. Um, um, I don't know how many. I don't know what the how many numbers that would be. How many hundreds of thousands or millions of Minnesotans fly every year in terms of jobs, recreation, et cetera, et cetera. That shuts down. Um, that shuts down on you know, roughly January first. Um, that's a problem. And then on top of which, again, think about other things that they said they wanted to do. Everybody for the second year in a year in a row said, "Yep, we're going to pass a bonding bill." Second year in a row, they said, "We're we're going to pass a transportation bill." Um, I mean, we're really looking at nothing passing. And again, if I can go back even just to our budget, you know, and it, this is great. I can do this as a, as a professor. We've got ten parts of our budget, which means ten points each. Um, so I can do a quiz here. Um, if my students went 0 for 10 um, in terms of the quiz, you know what the grade would be, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, and so here, I'm going to figure that one out. Yeah. It's pretty easy to figure out here. And so you would have to say at this point, we're looking at right now an F. Um, even if only half of them pass, we're still looking at an F at this point. You know, at least a 60 or better is passing. And so we're, we're looking at a, a, a pretty failed um, legislative um, session in terms of nothing passing. Um, oh, well, we things. can buy. I believe that we are going to be able to purchase um, liquor. We will be able to liquor, liquor, uh, beer, beer on, on Sunday. Sunday. I mean, like real beer on Sunday. That's right. On, That's <laughs> on right. July 1st. Except for, the fir- except for the first few Sundays for Certix, which won't probably be able to sell Right, Certix. For Certix, yes. Entirely. But you're right. And so this, it'll stand out that this is the session that we allowed Sunday liquor sales but we couldn't get anything else done during the session. That is not a good um, assessment. Um, and in fact, it's a horrible indictment of the legislative process. And Minnesotans ought to be really, really upset because if we were to go into another government shutdown, I mean, this all kicks in in terms of what? It'll kick in in terms of rest stops on the side of the roads. It'll kick into what the state parks closing again. Um, we've been through this before, and this is the kind of stuff that gets Minnesotans, rightly so, very, very annoyed. Well, I remember certain, you know, federal Really subsidized you know, or subsidized daycare centers closing down. Yes. Certainly, the state parks, mm-hmm. rest stops. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, and, and certainly, and not to, and not to leave out the thousands of people who work for the state government, exactly. who are counting on their paychecks. They right. didn't and, get a paycheck. It was just right. And know, also, we are. I think I'm not sure if we finished paying off yet the contractors um, who were who had contracts with Minnesota when that shutdown occurred, who didn't get paid, who faced delays. And we paid millions out to them. I actually did a blog way back then, also during the shutdown, and actually calculated. I can't even find it now. How many millions of dollars it cost us to wind down, shut down, and start up again? Right. Um, it would have been cheaper just to pass lights-on legislation and keep going. I mean, we we spent lots 
and lots of money um, to shut down the government. Well, it, it is going to be interesting because it, it, I, I think – and also this time around we've got a surplus. Yes. Because yes. in 2011, that was not the case. Yep. Yeah, here they, they seem to be fighting even harder all about, about how to spend the money that we have as opposed to trying to figure out where to come up with money to pay for our bills, which, which really shows the dysfunctionalism when usually people can be Santa Claus and give away right. stuff and, and everybody agrees to it. Here they can't even figure out how to be Santa Claus. Right. And, and yeah, it's, there, there's so many issues here. Um, and, so many, and also, there, there are a lot of in, in the Republican budget. I know that there are some cuts. Um, the Republicans want tax cuts, but there are also some cuts to some social service programs that are also facing potential cuts under the Trump administration. That's that's a whole other issue. But it, it is pretty complicated. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I certainly appreciate it. And you'll be a guest tomorrow on our, our TV show, yeah. WCCO Sunday Morning. Thank you so much. Uh, Insights are fabulous, as always. Good. Look, looking forward to seeing everybody tomorrow. Okay, Bye. great. The one and only David Schultz, folks. Um, goodness knows what could happen between now and 10.30 a.m. So we will have David Schultz there with his analysis. But uh, obviously a lot going on in the world of politics. Uh, actually, the fishing opener was enormously successful. I think it was like 40-plus fish. You would think that perhaps that success might engender some, well, togetherness, working together, fishing together, and no. Oh, well. Anyway, folks, thank you so much for listening. I want to thank uh, Susan Blanche, the producer of this show, for doing such a great job. Also, Jonathan Lowe and Kevin Reed, our fabulous studio coordinators. Have a wonderful Saturday, everybody, and tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.